Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Sapiniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. We hope that you are having a very wonderful day. Remember, you can catch us right here every week on your favorite Catholic radio station. If you do miss an episode, catch us online. Go to mncatholic.org slash podcast or just search for The Bridge Builder in your favorite podcast app. Make sure to leave us a five-star rating so that other Catholics will also be able to find us. We've got a great episode today. We'll have a discussion about the role of faith in judicial decision-making. We have so many Catholic judges on the Supreme Court, yet it seems the revolution in society continues apace. Why is that the case? In our mailbag segment, we're talking about lobbyists. What do lobbyists do, and why would the church have lobbyists? And of course, we want you to leave you with some practical tips on how you can start putting your faith into action. In our bricklayer segment, we look into details about how you can become a citizen lobbyist. And listeners, do you maybe have an idea for the bricklayer segment? Maybe you want to share with us how you are living your faith in action. Let us know. Send us an email, show at mncatholic.org. Or you can leave us a comment on any of our social media pages. You can also send us your mailbag questions. We are blessed to be joined on the line today by Professor Hadley Arcus, the founder and director of the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. Professor Arcus has long been a professor of philosophy and a public intellectual on the American scene. He taught at Amherst College beginning in 1966, and in, since 1987, he was the Edward Ney Professor of Jurisprudence. Since 2016, he has assumed emeritus status there. He has authored several books, along with many scholarly articles and pieces in the Wall Street Journal, the Weekly Standard, and National Review. Additionally, he has contributed writings for First Things and Crisis Magazine, and he, along with a band of friends, formed the web journal The Catholic Thing. Professor Arcus, welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me on, Jason. I was just recalling that all the times I've been back to Minneapolis and St. Paul, and I really recall there's an active pro-life movement in Minnesota, and I remember being out there when the Humphrey family was still pro-life. So, so the, That would have been a long time ago. Yeah, so the memories connect me to Minneapolis and the pro-life movement are, are, are quite, quite vivid. So thanks so much for having me on. Oh, it, it's really a blessing. And we mentioned a little bit at the outset about your uh, long and distinguished tenure at Amherst College, but also your service as a public intellectual. But you're a later convert to the Catholic faith. How, after all, all those years in, in teaching philosophy and uh, being really an important public voice on uh, issues particularly pertaining to the protection of human life, how did you decide to become a member of the Catholic faith? I, I was living in a Catholic world, and finally it was... Um late Father Arnie Penula, who'd come to Washington mm -hmm. from uh, Opus Dei. And of all things, he confronted me and said, you, the most notable figure, standing at the threshold, never coming across what has been holding you back. And I um, dipped into my Bert Law repertoire for the Wizard of Oz <laughs> to say, courage. Yeah. It's, it's what put the ape in apricot. It's what I haven't got. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, finesse that one, Jason. <laughs> then, okay, only a week later, my friend Luis Telez was in from Princeton, and I said, I'll take you to lunch. He said, I'm going to Mass with Father Arnie. I said, well, it's okay, I'll join you, then we'll go to lunch. So I went over there, and Father Arnie said, the one strand that connects these two 
readings together is courage. And then he came up. He said, you notice I was quoting you. I said, yes, I did notice. I did notice. I did notice. You know, you're right. The time has come. Oh, but I actually, can I tell you, we're on this matter. Can I tell you one telling story about the road to conversion? Please do. I was at a meeting for Catholic scholars, not yet Catholic, going to these meetings. And Stuart Swetland, who was at uh, Emmitsburg, I think, said he converted at Oxford as a result of his uh, conversations with Dermot Quinn. Well, I brought Dermot Quinn to this country, a fellowship at Amherst, and he stayed on to become a luminary at, at Seton Hall. Dermot said, you could believe everything the Church tells you and still not be a good Catholic. The question is, do you believe in the Church as a truth-telling institution? And that caught me. And I thought, I did. I really did. That when the Church stands against the currents that are at work in the culture and politics. My betting is that the Church has it right. Mm, that's, really, that's really well said. Professor Arcus, you advocated for the Born Alive Infant Protection Act. That's a story containing your book, Natural Rights and the Right to Choose. How does that issue help us understand the importance of the natural law in our public policy? I was thinking about abortion long before I became Catholic, just seeing it as the Church sees it, through a combination of mainly a principled reasoning about uh, why is that offspring in the womb any less than human, so on. Uh, doesn't speak yet, neither do deaf mutes. doesn't have arms or legs. Other people lose arms or legs in the course of their lives without losing anything necessary to their standing uh, to receive the protections of the law. Uh, Professor Arcus, let's spend a little bit of time on your reflections on the, the status of preborn life as a rights-bearing person uh, in utero. It seems we're winning the uh, the battle for hearts and minds, yet the discussions about the natural law, the anthropology that undergird some of these arguments, it seems to be slipping away and we seem to be returning to eugenics mindset. Assisted suicide seems to be gaining ground. How do we uh, take back and, and uh, start winning back some ground that's being lost on the anthropological dimension of this conversation? Correct. Because we had one federal judge just telling us, no, we can't. It's not a child protected by the law. It's a fetus who has survived, who was marked for an abortion. In other words, the right to an abortion is the right to a dead fetus. So I thought, let's start there. And that would draw attention. And because there's so many people who call themselves pro-choice, I like, no, that has to be a limit here somewhere. I just assumed that this news breaking out to the public would have a jolting effect because people just out there didn't realize that under Roe versus Wade, you could have an abortion that extends well beyond the first trimester, but extends for the, the entire length of the pregnancy. And then even when the child comes out, people didn't know that. What I never counted on was that the news would be blocked out in the major media. And then we came back to it again after the revelations of Kermit Gosnell and so I formed a group to go back and, and restore the penalties. We brought that bill to the floor with virtually every Democrat voting against it. So the position of the Democrats now in the, in the House and the Senate is that that right to abortion 
in Roe versus Wade is a right that extends beyond the pregnancy itself and involves nothing less than the right to kill a child who survives. Well, you, that would be devastating news if brought out, but it isn't brought out. It's not reported in the major media. It's not even reported on Fox News. It, it wasn't even used by the Trump administration or President Trump in the course of his his campaigns. You think it would be the most natural thing to do. It's a way of, of reaching people who are pro-choice but realize they wouldn't go that far. So I'm a little disappointed here also because it seems to me that First of all, the Trump administration, Mr. Trump presided over a fine administration with people in the Department of Health and Human Services like Roger Severino, who were extending protections for conscience and religious freedom, and with people at different levels doing what they could to promote the pro-life cause. We're not going to see anything like this in the coming administration. But what bothered me is that when Mr. Trump would raise the issue of abortion. It would always be in close quarters. It would be at a prayer breakfast, and only when he was dealing with pro-lifers. He wouldn't take the argument out into public. This simply continues a trend that's been, been in place for Republican presidents, even since Reagan. Though, though Trump did go out and for the, became the first president actually to attend the pro-life march in, in January. What disappointed me is that we we passed that bill twice in the House, and it wasn't brought to the floor of the Senate. So what's the situation? It's like, what's the old Woody Allen line? I'm sorry I can't leave you with something positive. Would you accept two negatives? (laughs) We're often told about the importance of having conservative judges on the bench who say what the law is, not what it should be. But it seems that even conservative judges, though, are unable to push back on some of the negative developments in our jurisprudence, whether it's the Obergefell decision, Roe v. Wade. In fact, they seem to be cementing those cases and just mainly moderating the revolution. What's going wrong with conservative jurisprudence? It, it's true. We seem to be making headway. We have more people convinced of the pro-life side, and yet we seem to be held back from making our strongest arguments. And we haven't had much help there from our friends in the courts. If you said we've had Catholics appointed to the courts, but I think they've been affected by this strange hold of conservative jurisprudence to put the accent on procedures and take a certain pride in the fact that they're steering around the moral question that stands at the core of the issue. Even my friend Justice Scalia, when the marriage case came up, Obergefell case, he said, I have no particular view of, of what marriage ought to be under the law. I simply take the line that marriage is not mentioned in the Constitution, and therefore the judges have nothing to declare on this matter and under the Constitution. So he said, what really matters to me is that 300 million Americans have lost the power to decide this question in favor of a handful of judges. The conservatives raise the structural issue, the procedural issue, and they keep steering. So he didn't get from the conservatives until the very end. In a dissenting opinion from Justice Roberts, a fuller defense of marriage as we've known it. My dear friend Scalia would say there's, there's all the mentions of persons in the Constitution, people being extradited, going across state lines. They must be mobile. Well, well there's no mention of people in wheelchairs either, or people with glasses. But if we understand that we're dealing with a human life, and the Constitution casts protection of a human life, 
put it this way. If one of the states of the Union withdrew the protection of the law from assaults on the lives of black people or Asians, we would have a clear case under the 14th Amendment of a state withdrawing the protections for life. So, well, if we do that, then why couldn't our judges, our court, say that, that any laws of this kind that withhold the protection of the law from the killing of children in the womb would fall into the same category, that the judges could take a more active role. They don't have to be tied to the question of whether abortion is mentioned in the Constitution. Mar- As I point out to Justice Alito, marriage was not mentioned in the Constitution. When the court struck down in 1967 those laws that barred marriage across racial lines, uh, the fact that it's not mentioned in the Constitution is certainly not enough to, to settle this question. But once we're clear that we're dealing with a human life, then we seem to understand that the laws on homicide are quite indifferent to that question of the height and weight of the age of the person. And if that's the case, then what is getting in the way? What is constraining the conservative judges from their willingness to cast their protections of law here? And even though they're Catholic, some of them have sort of, like, like my, my dear friend Scalia, just dubious about natural law and thought it was some kind of a foggy theory hovering in the sky. And they're more wedded to a scheme of proceduralism putting the accent on proper procedure and claiming to be indifferent to the results, though they express a certain contempt for a result-oriented jurisprudence where you're aiming at the right result. Well, but the, the consequence of that is that they take pride on working around avoiding the moral substance of the question before them. Justice Gorsuch's decision in the Bostick case seems to be one example of this phenomenon where not only are conservative judges not able to turn back some of the negative developments in our law, but in fact are advancing a progressive and untrue view of the human person that Bostick case, of course, involved, suggesting that someone who identifies as a member of the opposite sex from their biological sex should be affirmed and acknowledged and has a right to that acknowledgement in employment and can't be fired simply for asserting that identity. So when we had this, this awful decision on transgenderism, it was offered by Neil Gorsuch, an accomplished young judge who's highly vetted by the tests of originalism and textualism. And we have him coming out with this horrendous decision. If a man happens to believe earnestly that he is a woman, then everyone around him would be obliged to respect that judgment and speak that untruth. Well, when he came out with that, we had one young scholar saying, well, we might have lost the decision, but still, he respected originalism and textualism. Well, what does that mean? It means you can be an originalist and a textualist. You could be in favor of abortion, same-sex marriage, and perhaps supportive of transgenderism. Well, others who affect to be originalists are opposed, can be opposed to abortion and same-sex marriage. Well, what this tells us, if originalism can be on both sides, then originalism has the doctrines of principles of originalism have nothing really to say about the questions of, of moral consequence that we have to face here, the question that becomes utterly central to our lives. Now, who is the human person? Who is the bearer of rights? The object of the law's protection. Those are all central questions. Of that. So I say that what we've been given here is a conservative jurisprudence that's just morally empty, precisely because it takes a certain 
getting around those moral questions. The conservative judges have been more affected by the conventions that prevail among judges and of the courts in our time. Yeah, I think you're right that the conservative judges have taken a stand of agnosticism on certain moral truths, while the left is making moral arguments in its decisions. The the Bostick decision, Obergefell, these are fundamentally moral and not legal decisions. That's right. They, the left makes the moral argument. Correct. And our people retreat to question, well, who makes the decision? The decision was taken out of the hands of the people and, and brought in, into the judges. We're speaking with Professor Hadley Arcus. He is the Emeritus Professor of Philosophy and Jurisprudence at Amherst College and the founder of the James Wilson Institute. Professor Arcus, I want to turn to that. You're not content with cursing the darkness. You're lighting a candle. Tell us about the work uh, that you're doing with uh, recent, with law clerks and young lawyers at the James Wilson Institute. We also have a seminar with judges to bring together some rather stars of the federal bench who want to take natural law seriously and get a firmer handle on this. So we have, we have there a kind of seminar bringing together some of the most gifted teachers of philosophy and law, along with, um, with judges who want to get a firmer hold on the problem. And what all we can do is say is that we started doing this, and the judges wanted to keep coming back and doing more. And the group is held together. This was all begun when I was invited to do this project for the Claremont Institute. We formed a seminar for very accomplished young lawyers uh, to try to give them this this uh, uh, this alternative lens on the legal landscape. So then we broke away from Claremont and we formed the James Wilson Institute, named after one of the premier minds of the American founding, James Wilson, a Scotch immigrant, who made the case for this perspective in a series of brilliant lectures in the law, and apart from his other writings on the first Supreme Court. But we have young people, really accomplished young people, newly minted law degrees, perhaps just coming out of law school, but some who have been in clerkships for judges or on the way to clerkships. So we found, um, we had a few people who would work with us in the summer, a very intense week in the summer. And then they would go on to work with judges and a couple of them went to the Supreme Court. And what opens the eyes of the students is that there's an underlying structure of the moral argument that would be there almost regardless of the kind of clause of the Constitution you would use. So we'd say, look, uh, no, John, St- uh, John Quincy Adams once said that <clears throat> that right to petition the government would be there even if it weren't mentioned the First Amendment. It would be there even if there were no First Amendment. It would be there even if there were no Constitution. Chief Justice Marshall, saying in the old Dartmouth College case, enforcing people to enter a contract they did not wish could be as bad as impairing the obligation of a contract they had willingly made. And Chief Justice, and Justice Story, ladies, would say, that would be true even if there were no Constitution. James Wilson followed just Thomas Reed, the great Scotch writer, saying, look, it makes absolutely no sense to cast blame or praise on people who did not have the active power to cause their own acts to happen. That we take as the very first principle of law, that we don't hold people blameworthy for acts they were powerless to effect. And the great Thomas Reed said that proposition would be as true as any theorem in Euclid. Now, when you, when you press things to this level, 
trying to find out what's what's, what's the deep source of all this, then we come to those principles that not, that are not only true but have to be there. Because we, once you push things to this level to understand what really lies behind it all, what are those deeper axioms or principles of moral judgment, then you, what you realize is that you are at a point dealing with principles that were there before the Constitution, principles that the founders were drawing upon as they framed the Constitution, principles that were there before the Constitution and now, you could say, principles that would be there even if there were no Constitution. Indeed, and if we're to sum that up for our listeners, we might say that judicial decision-making can't be content with relying on the legal materials that are limited to the four corners of the actual written document, but must incorporate and consider those moral principles outside the document that inform the document and, in fact, guide human action rightly. That's right. We don't say who's a human being. Aristotle's law arises only from the nature of that being who can give and understand reasons over right and wrong. They have to presuppose so many things that are not in that text. Now, you have it exactly right, Jason. And I did a book called, once called Beyond the Constitution. I tried to explain the, the point you just articulated, that as you try to apply the Constitution, you keep getting driven back to those understandings that were there that informed this clause before, before you had this clause. Uh, you had to go back to those, those deep principles. And what you do is dealing back, going back to those things that the great Thomas Reed considered a matter of common sense, those things that people have to know before they get on with the business of life. So, you know, you'd say before the average man would start bantering, say, with David Hume about the meaning of causation, the average man would know his own act of powers to cause his own act to happen. And if you, ask, if you give this problem to the ever, that proverbial man on the street, what if you're told that Smith, accused of this crime, had been in intensive surgery when the time was, crime was committed, or Smith had not been born yet? What do we think the average man would say? The average man would say, why are you, pro- why are you prosecuting him? Uh, the average man would understand that you don't hold people blameworthy for actual powers to effect. What we're telling people is, that as we press on this matter of natural law, we are pressing to those things that have to be there before the law. We pass to those things that form the ground of, of things that ordinary people know as a matter of common sense, that it doesn't take a law degree to, to grasp. And that we're driven back really to those, the axioms of reason, those laws of reason that are available to creatures. Aquinas said, the divine law we know through revelation. But the natural law, we know through that reasoning that is accessible to human beings as human beings, we might say natural to human beings. And what a fantastic place to finish. I can give a hearty endorsement to your books, Professor Arcus, Natural Rights and the Right to Choose, Constitutional Illusions and Anchoring Truths, First Things Beyond the Constitution. Uh, I've been blessed to have great teachers, and you have been one of them. So thanks for joining us on The Bridge Builder today. Where can people go to learn more about the James Wilson Institute? Well, just punch in James Wilson Institute, and you'll find a whole array of things we've done, pieces I've done, but meetings we've had, talk, lectures we've given. And one thing, uh, we did a, a, a wonderful memorial to our late friend Michael Newman, who'd been counselor to Reagan and 
friend of Scalia's and so on, a great teacher. And we had uh, Clarence Thomas, Boyden Gray, Bill Barr coming in to explain how they were directed on their, their paths by Michael Human. And if, I think just, if just even to put on that, you'll see the, the range of characters who've been associated with this project. And I think people would find it fascinating. But uh, you could just, just punch in James Wilson Institute, and you can get access to our website. And uh, you'll probably be asked to contribute, if, if you do, to try to keep it going. But listen, thank you so much for, for having me on, Jay. It's nice, nice, to, nice to hear your voice. And uh, I just hope we'll see you again soon. Likewise, and thanks so much for being on the Bridge Builder Day, Professor Arcus, and God bless you and all the good work you're doing. Oh, thanks so much. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag segment? Yeah, so with the legislative session now underway, one of our podcast listeners says he wants to know more about lobbyists. He asks, what exactly does it mean to be a lobbyist, and why then does the church have lobbyists? Well, that's a great question. And building off our discussion with Professor Arcus, in which he mentioned the right to petition the government for a redress of grievances, a right that's in our First Amendment, but would exist whether or not we had a First Amendment written down. It's important one that the citizen should be able to petition the sovereign, the state, the governor, whoever, to redress grievances, because the state and the political actors have responsibility for the common good, protect the rights and dignity of individuals and communities. And so we should be able to petition the government when we have a problem. Problem. The term lobbying has various origins. It could be people standing outside of Ulysses S. Grant's office in the lobby and uh, waiting to talk to him about a matter. Some people believe it stretches back to Parliament and Westminster Hall and Parliament of Great Britain. Regardless of its origins and in terms of the word, it's something that anyone can do. We can petition the government for a redress of grievances. What professional lobbyists do is help uh, people navigate the people, the policy, and the process of government. And you have to know all three of those. Who are the who's? Uh, what's the process? And what what are the right um, policy tools to achieve a desired result? And they could provide an important and useful service, bringing together different coalitions, building momentum around a movement. They are public affairs professionals. And so the church has lobbyists. Our team here at the Minnesota Catholic Conference is the, the local church's lobbyists that are state capital and with our congressional delegation to help our bishops and help the church navigate that process, to help pass legislation, to be diplomats with our elected officials on important matters of concern. So lobbyists, uh, though they're given a bad name, serve a very, very important function in our political process. They are trusted advisors. What we have to our good name is credibility and the way in which we serve as educators to legislators and to citizens. And so it's important that we have integrity in the process and that we preserve that credibility so we can be good advocates, but also good resources to our elected officials. Thanks, Jason. And before we close out the show, we want to leave our listeners with those practical ways that they can start building that bridge. What do you have in this week's Bricklayer segment? Well, people can join Catholics from across Minnesota to become a citizen lobbyist during our Catholics at the Capitol event this spring. That's coming up on April 15th. We hope that it's going to be in person. Registration for Catholics at the Capitol is now open. Go to catholicsatthecapitol.org. 
Catholics at the Capitol is your chance to learn about some of the big issues impacting life and dignity in Minnesota, and then lobby your legislators. You will have the chance, along with other Catholics from your area, to speak with your senator and representative. We've had over 1,100 Catholics come to St. Paul in 27 and 2019. It's a fantastic event, and we're looking forward to another excellent event this year. Register today for Catholics at the Capitol and join us on mission for life and dignity on April 15th. We've got some great speakers, too. Archbishop Jose Gomez of Los Angeles, the president of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, and British-Nigerian pro-life activist Obianaju Ekeocha, a true international pro-life champion, will be present here in the Twin Cities to speak to our group and inspire them to become advocates for life and dignity. Get your tickets today, and you'll get the early bird discount. Just head to Catholics at the Capitol. Org. Once you've registered, let others know that they can join you. Share the good news using our hashtag CatCap2021. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. Again, if you go to our podcast app, you can catch up on past episodes. Make sure to send us your questions and comments via our Bricklayer segment. You can email us at show at mncatholic.org. Thanks for listening today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with you another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Sapiniak at the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening. Have a blessed Christmas season.